0: Thanks, Em. just wanted everyone to know how polite I was being. Lovely to see you all here today. I just wanted to uh, address something before we get started this morning. Adrian, uh, have you ever been to a Column Buchanan concert before? No, no You know, and we could all tell because you were talking about it as if you've never been to a Column Buchanan concert <laughs> before. Okay? Now listen, as you may know, I grew up and I love all the metals. Okay, Death metal, heavy metal, black metal, I love all of them. The Colin Buchanan concert I came to last year had the most violent mosh pit I've ever seen of any concert of all time. It combines the four top music genres, country, western, Christian, and kids all together, and it has a toilet paper gun. So if you don't come, what's wrong with you? Come on. You've got to come. Uh, And if a violent mosh pit in country and western Christian kids music doesn't do it for you, I don't know what to tell you. Okay, it's a good thing we're looking at the Bible. G'day everyone, Love to see you here. Uh, I'm Dave. I'm <laughs> uh, dear, I'm one of the pastors here and I'm going to pray uh, and then we'll look at this wonderful passage together. Hey, Heavenly Father, uh, we give you great thanks for every good gift you give to us and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are not distant and disinterested, but you're here, you're present, you care and you have spoken. Lord, you know our hearts, you know the distractions, the things that take our minds away to wander. And Lord, I pray uh, this morning... For those of us who are Christians, that you would help us focus through the power of your Spirit in our hearts on what you are saying. And for those who are not Christians here today, Lord, I pray that you would save them so they come to know and love you as their Father. I pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, here at church, as many of you will know, we run a couple of things every term uh, that are specifically designed for people checking out Christianity, looking into it for the first or the hundredth time, doesn't matter. One of them is called the Life Series, the other one's called Explaining Christianity. Uh, and both of these series, both of these courses run uh, and people come to them, find out about Jesus. A whole bunch of people become Christians, some people don't, but they ask questions and they're really wonderful things. They'll be kicking off again in Term 1, uh, morning and night, so make sure you come along to them. Now, I've been involved. In running these type of courses for around 10 years all over the place. And what you notice uh, when you run these courses again and again is how many questions continually pop up. No matter how, um, what demographic you're speaking to, there's a bunch of questions that are always there. For example, there's usually always a question about suffering. Um, people, Big questions about that. The Questions about sin, questions about uh, Jesus' identity, But by far and away, the the most common question, I think, um, is about other religions and Christianity's relationship with other religions. And it usually springs forth from the idea that comes through the course um, that Christianity claims to be the only way of salvation. Now, that is just what Christianity says. Jesus, John 14 verse 6, check it out later, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, when people understand that that's what Christianity is saying, it is explosive for them often. And the reason for that is because we live in a culture which hates the idea of kind of these exclusive truth claims. We've got a cultural air that sort of says, hey, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. So they sort of, it's a culture clash when you hear this type of thing. But I also want to say one of the reasons it's so explosive is because this idea that Christianity is exclusive, it cuts right to the heart of what I'm convinced is the most common perspective available to us about religion in our culture. I think most people within our culture, within Australia, anywhere really, most people, when they think about religion, they, they almost always think, well, religion can be good, it can be bad, but in essence, it's really the same thing. And so the question that we will get in response to this claim will sound something like, hold on, hold on, hold on, wait a minute. What are you saying? Christian is the only way. Firstly, that sounds very narrow-minded. And secondly, how could that be possible? Aren't all religions just different pathways heading to the same destination? Now, that is by far and away the most common perspective available to us about religion in our culture. And I think there's a bunch of reasons for that. I want to give you two. The first reason I'm convinced this is so popular is because it's actually, well, it hits on a truth. And the truth that it hits on is that all religions are actually bonded together in one way. All religions actually are seeking to answer the same question. Now, what do you think that question is? Just inside your mind. What question is it that all religions are offering an answer to? I reckon, and I've summarised that, This simply, but I reckon the question all religions are trying to answer or offering an answer to is: how do I get right with God in this life and the next? I want you to think about every religion. Just think about it. They're all circling with an answer to that question. How do I get right with God in this life and the next? So all religions are saying that, are trying to answer that. And the second reason a lot of people think they're saying the same thing is because, well, the reality is that 99.999999% of religions actually are saying the same thing. Well, different versions of the same thing. They actually are offering a fairly similar outlook on life and many of them would agree with that. they go, yeah, yeah, we're pretty much the same thing. There's only one religion, guess what it is, one religion (laughs) that says something different and that is Christianity. See, the Bible offers an answer to the question of how I get right with God in this life and the next that is completely different to any other perspective you'll ever hear. Completely, radically, revolutionarily different. So much so that it really leaves us with with three options when we think about religion. Either every religion is wrong, possible. Either... 99.9% 99.9% of religions are right and Christianity is wrong or Christianity is right and the rest are wrong. What Christianity says is so different they cannot possibly coexist if you know that bumper sticker. <laughs> if you've seen that. Christianity cannot coexist. It's like the sort of awkward relative in the family WhatsApp. You know, just like mute. Pushing the, they can't They're always saying something awkward and difficult. That's Christianity in this context. It's saying something explosive. So today, what we're doing, I hope this is straightforward, is we're going to look at what the Bible says in answer to that question, the great question, how do I get right with God in this life and the next? We'll look at what the Bible says, compare and contrast it with other religions, their thoughts, and then spend some time looking at how that affects us, no matter who you are today, if you are either a Christian, but also if you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian here today, I want to warn you um, that there is a twist coming in what we're looking at, a twist which actually changes everything uh, about what we're going to hear uh, that makes things very, very personal. So let's get straight to it. Romans chapter 4 is what we're looking at. We're well, at end of Romans 3 and Romans 4. There's few better places in the Bible we could go to to, uh, to answer this question about God and how we get right with him in this life and the next. Um, up until this point in Romans from the midway through chapter 1 until sort of midway in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote the book, has been hitting on one topic again and again and again and again and again, a narrative, a theme, an idea, a, a thought, which he is desperate for everyone who reads it to understand. And we see it culminating in verse 10. So let me read this for you. Here's, here's what Paul, the author, has been desperate for you to hear about yourself. Verse 10. As it is written, There is no one righteous not even one. Now the word righteous is an important one for us today so listen listen. Righteous is a legal term. Think of a court of law. It's the exact same word as the word justified. Justified and righteousness they're the same thing. What it means is not guilty. Now I don't mean not enough evidence out to go. I don't mean hung jury, you're fine. It means innocent. Yeah? Perfectly innocent. Not guilty. Beautiful word. Unfortunately, what is it saying? There is no one of us who is righteous. Flip it. We are all unrighteous, all unjustified, all guilty. Guilty of what? Well, listen to verse 11. There is no one who seeks God. Fast forward, verse 23, another great summary statement. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What are we guilty of? Well, the Bible says we are guilty of sin. Sin is the rejection of God, his, his rule and his reign over us. In, in thought, word and deed, it's something that we all do. Now, the result of this is catastrophic. Okay? The results of sin in the world are Catastrophic. Sin is at the root cause of every single problem we have in the world. Everyone. It's like a brick through a windshield. Boom! It hits and then it just shatters, 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 shatters. Ripple effect, ripple effect. On and on. Sin is the consequential problem at the center of every problem. But that's not the biggest problem. Sin separates us from God. And it means that one day when we die, we will face judgment for how we've lived. And how are we going to be found? He tells us already. Boom! Guilty. Now, let's pause for a moment and regather. That's hard to hear, isn't it? It's difficult. (laughs) And maybe you're a visitor and you're like, what am I doing here? I could be at the beach. Why am I here? What am I doing? But I want to offer to you that it's not unique. This perspective of humanity, that the world is broken, that we are responsible for the brokenness of the world, is actually circling the wagons of every other religion. It's certainly there. You'd have, to, you know, you'd have to have your eyes completely shut not to be able to look at the world and think, oh, there's a problem. Things aren't the way that they should. And religions, all religions, will say, hey, humanity is a part of that. There will be different ways they talk about it, of course, but it's worth saying every religion puts forward the idea that we are not perfect. There's a problem with what we've done. And so because there's a problem with what we've done, We'll need to sort it out because if we die before that happens, we're in drama. We're in, we're in big, big trouble. It may be put like, oh, you'll go to um, Hades or purgatory or hell. You, it could be you'll be reincarnated as a bad thing or bad, whatever, whatever it is. But this is a pretty simple idea. Now, that stands to reason, doesn't it? Because right at our hearts, none of us want to live in a world, let alone a universe, where justice doesn't exist. Now, what's justice? Justice is where people are given what they deserve for what they've done. None of us want to live in a world with no justice. The idea of a God who doesn't uphold justice, man, it's horrifying. Now, you'll know this if you've ever been uh, the victim of crime before. This is a horrible story. I apologize in advance. When I was in year eight, uh, I went to school in Sydney, and a a boy in the year above me uh, was murdered. It's horrible. Stabbed. Uh, in a mugging gone wrong, uh, created a huge, uh, you know, horrible, horrible impact on his family, his friends, on the whole school community. Uh, it was dreadful. But it wasn't, well, was it the worst? But it was made worse by the fact that the killers got away with it. And they still have gotten away with it. For 11 years, no one knew who they were. But after 11 years, one of the people involved. Uh, one of their ex-friends came and dobbed on them to the police. So that person was arrested. But they said, well, I, I was there, but I didn't do it. And I can prove I didn't do it, X, Y, and Z. Here's the person who did it. And he identified someone else. But that was a problem because that person, not long after the murder had taken place, had, had actually fled Australia. They had a different passport. They moved overseas where they've been for 15 years or so, whatever, however long, no, well past 15 years, 25 years they've been there. Um, and that country they live in does not have an extradition treaty with Australia. So that person is free as a bird living over there. Justice hasn't been done. And so the pain of the family, you can imagine, yeah, the pain of the family, the feeling of it, not only have we lost this one, but no one has paid for it. None of us want to live in a universe where there's no justice. The idea of a God who would just turn, the, turn their head and go, oh, well, whatever. I mean, that, that should make us furious at that thought. Now, it's worth identifying as well that that's exactly what the Bible says. We hate injustice, but it's not just us. The one true living God, he hates it as well. Now, you don't have to go there. I'll go there for you. Is a great reading from Proverbs 17. It's just one verse, so chase it up later. Proverbs 17, verse 15. I want to give you God's perspective on injustice. Okay? God's perspective on what he feels about people getting away with it. Check it out. Proverbs 17 verse 15. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent. The Lord detests them both. God hates injustice. He hates injustice. So the question becomes, how do we get right with God? in this life and the next, if we're not perfect, if we've fallen short of the mark, but it's still what we want to do. And this, now this is so important. This is where a division forms, a clear, unmistakable division. There already have been some, but a clear, unmistakable division between 99.9% of all religions and Christianity. Christianity. How do most religions answer the question of how you get right with God? Well, it's all about the line that they draw. Okay, the line that they draw. In essence, the picture is there is an invisible dividing line between those who go to the good place or places or whatever it is, the good God's people, and the bad people. And that invisible dividing line exists, God has put it down, and if we do enough of the things that are good, we'll go on that side. If we do enough of the things that are bad, we'll go on that side. Now the question is, what is that dividing line that other religions say that God has determined? That's one word. The word is behaviour. Okay. Let me simplify it, but summarise it like this. What do all religions say, minus one, about how you get right with God? You get right with God by being a good person. Now, of course, I'll define good differently. This is the difference. You know, pray like this, pray like that. Pray that direction, pray that direction. Eat this, don't eat that, eat this. Instead, eat that. Get your hair cut like this, wear that, don't wear that. Now, I'm not mocking other words. There's very earnest and, and lovely people involved. I'm not saying otherwise. But what is driving behind all of these things? Simple. If I do enough of the good things... I will move from that line to the next. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of being at school and having to line up and get chosen for a sporting team. Did you ever have to do that? If you enjoyed that, you're a jerk. Okay. <laughs> the rest of us hated it. Standing there, and the, the two captains come out, and they pick. Who do they pick first of all? Their friends. But after that, what is the standard by which they divide? Talent, skill behavior. You, 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 you. And the picture of other religion, make no mistake about it, make no mistake. Listen very clearly. And it's not just religion, by the way. Moral, atheistic philosophy says the same, even about life. Behavior. God goes, you, 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 there you go. You've been good, you're in. You've been good, you're in. You've been good, you're in. But this is where Christianity says no. Now, let's be clear. The idea of what we've just looked at is very rational. It's very logical. It makes a lot of sense. After all, in life, if you want something good, you've got to work for it. If you want a good career, you've got to work for it. you want good children, you've got to work at it, and half the time it doesn't work. But still, you want good stuff in life, you've got to work for it. So surely, when it comes to the thing that matters most in life, if you want good, you've got to do good. The Bible says no. The Bible instead offers a truth that is so explosive, it's turned the world on its head. But it also offers a truth that I want to assure you, you never would have dreamed of on your own. Because it's counterintuitive. intuitive Do you know what I mean? It, it doesn't work the way that you think it'll work. It's a bit like reversing with a trailer. You know, you turn right and it goes left, you turn left. and I'm, think, I'm sure that's how it works. Anyway, whatever the case... The things that you do, that you think matter, don't, and the things you don't think matter, so on and so forth. What is it then that uh, that Christianity offers to us? Well, come to Romans chapter 4. And let me show you very clearly, just from one verse, the message of God to you about getting right with him that is repeated from the very beginning, from the book of Genesis onwards, And yet it is so often missed by so many. Romans 4, verse 5. And I want to say to you, listen, if you've zoned out so far, wake up, back in. Listen, if you've zoned out so far, you're a sinner, you need help, here we are. That's it. Boom. <laughs> what does God offer you about the life to come, about this life? What is it? Don't you think you could just come halfway in the sermon and get that instead? That would be much easier, wouldn't it? But what do? what do we have to do? However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Three explosive claims in one sentence. Firstly, the one who does not work. Now, work there is not about the job, okay? it's not talking about employment, it's talking about spiritual work. The things that people do in order to qualify them for God be good, be kind, be thoughtful. Do rituals. Do regulations. And of course, there's a version of Christianity which has the same sort of thing. We're going to take communion later on. Take communion. That'll get you there. Be baptized. We saw that. We did that last week. That'll get you there. Do this, do this, do this. But what are we reading here? No, no, no. God offers justification, but not to those who work, rather to those who do not work. You're not saved by what you do. You won't get there by what you do. Statement number three, what do we have to do? The answer, nothing. God justifies the ungodly. Now, those words are in there, but let me make it clear. This is so important. God justifies the ungodly. The ungodly don't justify the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. God declares guilty people as innocent. Now, listen. If you ask 100 people, how do you get to heaven? I don't believe in heaven. Whatever. Pretend there's a heaven. How do you get to heaven? 99% of them will say this. Well, you get to heaven by being a what kind of person? Good person. Now, let's reverse that trailer. What does God say? Heaven's not for good people. Heaven is for bad people only. Only bad people go to heaven. Only ungodly people. Unrighteous people. Sinful people. Statement number three. So what line then does God use? If the dividing line is not behaviour, what is it? Their faith is credited as righteousness. The dividing line that God uses is not behaviour, it's belief. Now the consequences of that are so offensive... That if you haven't caught it, let me spell it out. God is saying to you and me, to all of us, you can be a moral person, a kind person, a generous person, a gracious person, a charitable person, a religious person. You can be the second greatest human being who's ever lived. But if you don't have faith, you are not Going to heaven. You can achieve and accomplish any of your goals in life. You can be as true to yourself as you want. You can be as impressive, have the highest reputation, have the house, the spouse, the car, all of it. But the one thing that matters most is not what you do, it's who you believe. You can be baptized. You can take communion, you can go to church, you can go to mass, you can read your Bible back to front, upside down every single day, you can say your prayers, you can believe to the facts of Christianity till the cows come home. But it's all for nothing without faith. Now I hope that leads to a logical question. (laughs) A logical question for, for many of you. And the logical question when we hear something like that, that God, who hates injustice, justifies the unjust, that bad people are the ones who go to heaven, the logical question is, really? Wait, what Bible are you reading? Are you in the maps? What what is this? How can that possibly be true? How can it be possible that God, the perfect, the powerful, the pure, the one who hates injustice, who loathes, Injustice. How could he justify the ungodly? How could it be possible? How could it be possible that faith, what we believe, is more important than what we do? And what's driving that question for many of us is that not only does that seem illogical and irrational and incoherent and unfair, it also feels very different to what some of you may have thought Christianity said. And let me assure you, I was one of you. It's very common to believe Christianity is like the 99.99% where our religion is based on what we do. Why do we do all the things that we do? Why would I come to church if I don't have to? Are you saying I don't have to come here? Why would I come? That's exactly what I'm saying. Not me. That's exactly what the Bible is saying. But you will only ever understand it when you understand the meaning of what? Faith. And by meaning, I mean the definition, but I also mean God's purpose for it. What's God playing at? Is he taking his hands off the wheel or what? What's going on? Faith is one of those words that's a bit complicated for us because it's got a whole bunch of different definitions that we use simultaneously to each other that clash with one another, but we never bother to articulate clearly. When many people use the word faith, they legitimately, literally, in fact, the dictionary defines it as blind faith. So something that you believe with no evidence whatsoever that it is reality. It's like if you meet a tourist from overseas. And they say, after coming to the central coast, oh, after here, we're going we're to visit Wollongong. We've heard it's lovely. And you're like, you've obviously never been there. It's a dump. What are you doing? Well, I just believe it will be. Don't. Stop at rule. Don't go. Is it past? rule well, I'm going, who cares? It is what it is. Blind face. <laughs> blind, I tried up with Melbourne at 8.30. It got less laughs than the wool So anyway, that was just not funny. New Zealand, that's even better. Now, the other type of faith we use, and this is so common, is the idea of believing in the facts of Christianity as facts. So for example, it's very common to hear people say, I believe in God. And by that, they mean, I believe there is a God. More than that, I believe he's the Christian God. More than that, I believe Jesus died and rose from the dead. I believe he rules and reigns over the world. I believe... But here's what I want to say to you. Those are not the meanings of faith that the Bible uses. Look at verse 5 again. Verse 5 actually uses the original language faith twice, but it helpfully interprets it differently so that we can see that there's more to faith than blindness and facts. What does verse 5 say? However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. At the end of the sentence, we're told faith is faith. But how is the word faith interpreted and defined before that? The word, what is it? Trust. You see, the definition of faith that you and I use far more often just in our lives than anything else is not blind, it's not facts, it's trust. What does it mean to trust? Well, it means to have confidence in, to depend on. Something we do every day. You're doing it right now. You're sitting on the seat. You didn't make the chair. You do not know when it's going to fall over. You don't work at Freedom Furniture. You don't know chairs. What do you know about them? Nothing. And yet you choose to sit in it. Why? Not because of blindness. Not because it is a chair, but because you've seen other people, probably even heavier people than you sit in it. You've sat in it before. You've every reason to trust and have confidence that this will hold you. But here's the thing about trust. Trust on its own is nothing more than an intellectual process. The strength of trust, the thing that makes trust worth anything, is not that you trust. It's what you put your trust in If you were to come in here and try and take a seat on your trust, where would you end up? On your butt. On the carpet. You're trusting the chair. The chair is the thing with the power to hold you. The chair is the thing that can withstand the pressure of your weight. So why does God give us faith? as the way to him? What is it about trust, about dependence, about confidence that means God requires it of us, gives it to us? Well, the answer is because trust and faith, my dear friends, are not tests. They're not tricks. But trust is the only possible way Someone as bad as you could be made righteous. Being good enough for God doesn't work because you ain't good enough for God. It's too late. And even if you tried to polish it up, you'd last till lunchtime. Best try and get stuck in the car park on the way out. You'll last to the car park. You won't do it. This is articulated for us really clearly at the end of chapter 3. Just have a look here. Let me read these for you, these words. This is summary again, verse 22 onwards. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're all sinners. We're all in desperate need of salvation. We We all need to get right with God. So what do we need to do? Verse 24. All are justified freely. By his grace. The bad news is we're cut off from God and facing judgment because of the life that we've lived. But the good news, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've seen, no matter what you've done, no matter what countries you've traveled in, no matter what your bank balance says, no matter how many times you've been divorced, no matter how many times you've been single, no matter how many things you've looked at you shouldn't have, no matter how many thoughts that you've had, you can be justified at what price? Free. Free freely by his grace generosity but how how can god just let a scumbag like me into his family let a scumbag like you in as well the answer verse 25 through the redemption that came by christ jesus listen to this please god presented christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. How can God declare unrighteous people righteous? How can he declare guilty people innocent? Because the guilt of the guilty, the guilt of the sinner, has not been thrown away. It's been punished, but just not in the sinner my friends, you, you may have heard this a million times. This may be the first time. It matters not hear this. The heart of Christianity is that your sin has been punished in the Son, Christ Jesus. Your unrighteousness was put onto his charge sheet, his account. Jesus stood in the dock on your behalf. The judge banged the gavel guilty over his life. The punishment that you deserve was poured out by him. The justice you deserve is paid for in his death. This is so important. Why did Jesus die? Man, I grew up in the church. I could not answer that question. Jesus didn't die for good people. He didn't die so you and him could form some sort of network and work your way towards goodness together. He didn't die so he'd do 90% of it and you do 10% of it with a bit of communion, a bit of baptism, a bit of this, or a bit of that. He died... Because you are bad. Not because you're good. That's why he died. He died because you're unrighteous. If you were righteous, he wouldn't have had to die. You're not righteous. He died for you, in your place, on your behalf. Not because you love him. But even though you don't. My friends, you can't be good enough for God because you're not good enough for God. Yet he promises that you and oil. Crack open your head for a moment and let it all pour out. Imagine everyone else looking at that. You, 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 me, you. We can be justified. Made righteous, forgiven. But not by little trivial acts of goodness. But by trusting in what Jesus has done. Why does God divide us by faith? Why does God save by faith, not by works? Because works don't work. Faith works. And yet faith is not a work in its own. Faith is nothing more than sinners trusting in the sinless. Not something we do to earn our salvation, but something we do to throw ourselves at God's mercy. So, how do those truths, this truth that we've looked at, how do those things impact your life here today? Well, let me just finish by talking to you as a Christian and talking to the people here who are not Christians. If you are a Christian, what does faith do for your life? Well, let me answer that um, the power of that Question is not found in what faith is. It's important to know that, but it's found in understanding what faith does. Paul uses Abraham as this illustration of the eternal, uh, sorry, the, the timeless teaching of faith not works in chapter four. He, he uses Abraham's faith not works as an example of how this has always been the way that God relates. But then in verse twenty-one, he says something really important for us to see. Look what he says. He says. Abraham was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. What does faith do? Faith guarantees your future. Faith faith means you can know for certain what happens when you die. Faith is like a telescope peering into the future. The future reality that God promises for all those who would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, death and resurrection on his behalf. And that telescope is so powerful and so realistic that it makes that future present in your current reality. So substantial is that presence of the future that you can shape and mould your life around it because you know That in the courtroom of heaven, God has declared all those who trust in Jesus, what? Righteous, justified, and his salvation for you, his forgiveness of you is not a one-off and then you've got to keep working at it. It is once and for all, saved, forgiven, justified, righteous, and he knew about the future sin of your soul before he chose to save you. What does that mean? What does knowing the future mean? What does knowing that you're secure in salvation mean? It means that you can know no matter your Monday, your Tuesday, your Wednesday, your Thursday, your Friday, your Saturday, no matter your Sunday morning, no matter your ups, no matter your downs, no matter the good times, no matter the bad, no matter your obedience, no matter your sinfulness, no matter who you are and what you do and where you go, You are in as perfect a relationship with God on the day of your death as you are in the day of your salvation. On your best day, you are a child of God. On your worst day, you are a child of God. God doesn't sulk at you. He doesn't cross his arms and turn his back. And when you come to him and say, God, I've done it again. You must be sick of me. He reaches out his arm and says, I'm never sick of you. I love you. I love you. You're mine. You're mine. How does God feel about you, my friend? He loves you. That is the secure ground upon which Christians live free of guilt, free of shame, free of fear, free of anxiety. Free to follow Jesus, to fix our eyes on Him. (laughs) You know, people make fun of me for saying this, but Mamma Mia, how good is that? That's amazing grace, amen. There's nothing like it. You're safe and secure. But let me challenge you very, very quickly to say for you, if you're a Christian, if that is you, then my dear friends, we are not called to lives of comfort and privilege. We're not called to lives of fame and fortune, of leisure. We're not called to the trivia of this world becoming the main thing in our lives, if you know that what happens next is what matters most and you know that you're going to heaven, you know that your eternity is secure, then what does that free you to do? To be free of the trivia of middle-class Australia, but to fill your life with things that matter eternally. What does that look like? You work it out. But it frees you to put him first, to not be captured in that way. But let me finish now by speaking to you if you're not a Christian. My dear friends, if you're not a Christian here today, there is a twist in the tale of what we're looking at. I wonder if you've seen it. God says to you that you do not need to fix your life up to come to him. God says to you that you don't need to wait until you're self-justifying and a polished version of yourself in order to come to him. God says to you that you do not need to take communion or be baptised or go to church a particular number of Sundays in order to qualify you for heaven. No, 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 no. Here it is. You can become a Christian now. Now. Your sin doesn't disqualify you from his family. It qualifies you for his grace. I spent my whole life ignoring that, you know, man. Until one day, I stopped. And I threw myself on His mercy. And I put my trust in Him. Now, I want to ask you if that's you today, stop running. Instead, stop trying to fix yourself up. Stop trying to improve yourself. Instead, trust in Jesus. Trust in him. He's done it for you. There is no other way. God loves you. He made you for himself. He sent his son to die for you so you can be forgiven. 2,000 years ago, on the night before Jesus died, he gathered his disciples together and he picked up some bread and got some wine. And he instructed his disciples to eat and drink all of it in remembrance of what he would do on their behalf. It's a practice that over 2,000 years, Christians have done all around the world. They're doing it all around the world today. We are, you know. It's called communion or the Lord's Supper. It doesn't make anyone a Christian, but here's the thing. It's only for Christians. Why? Because communion is a tangible, physical reminder of what Jesus has done in order to bring you to him, dying for your sins. I'm going to pray in just a moment a prayer of what we call confession. This means admitting who we are, what we've done. If you're not a Christian here tonight, today, I want to invite you to pray that with me inside your heart, to put your trust in Jesus. And then when the moment comes to come forward and get some bread and get some juice, whether you go, whether somebody else goes or whatever, why don't you... Share for the very first time in what Jesus has done for you as a Christian. Wow. As a reminder of what he's done. Celebrate who he is. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite everyone to bow your heads, the musicians to come forward. I'm going to pray. If you're a Christian, please pray along with me inside your heart. But if you're a non-Christian, I'll invite you to do that as well. And then we'll come forward and collect the bread and the juice. Friends, bow your heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, I have sinned against you in thought and word and deed. I am not worthy of being called your child. I'm sorry for what I've done. Please forgive me of my sins. I know that Jesus Christ... Died and rose from the dead so that I may be justified before you. Lord, I trust in Jesus. Help me with your help and power and spirit follow you today as my Saviour and my Lord. I pray this in your son, my king, Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, friends, please come forward and to the points around and pick up the bread and the juice, take it back to your seat, uh, and then we'll take communion together. Friends, please stand with the bread in your hand. um, Take and eat in remembrance of Jesus Christ, his body that was killed for you on your behalf. And be thankful. And with this juice, take and drink in remembrance of the blood of Christ that was shed for you and be thankful. Well, what better thing can we do in response to all of that, I reckon, than uh, keep singing.